Hello. Before you listen to this week's edition of the Lloyd's List podcast, I want to draw your attention to a webinar that I think you're going to be interested in. On February the 15th at 2pm UK time, it's our first webinar of the year, and we are looking at digitalization as a service. Is it a gimmick or is it a game changer? I know I have my views, but we have an expert panel offering some much needed expert insight on a topic that is going to be so central to so many shipping company strategies going forward this year. So go to loislist.com, find the banner at the top of the homepage and register for free today. Now, on with the podcast. The Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. This year is going to be pivotal in the race to decarbonize shipping. Come July, the International Maritime Organization is expected to adopt a revised strategy for reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from ships. Now, That may not sound particularly seismic, and you have no doubt heard people like me describe every climate change meeting as pivotal for several years. But bear with me on this, because what is, or crucially is not, agreed in July is going to determine the regulatory landscape of the shipping industry for decades to come. It is important. An agreement that is aligned to the 1.5 degree Paris Agreement targets, that is well to wake rather than tank to wake, that is wrapped up with the right detail about pathways to 2030 and 2040, as well as the headline goal of 2050, and on top of that has all of the right language inserted to ensure an equitable transition, well, that's what we're aiming for. That's the gold standard that aligns with climate science and will keep shipping on track. What we actually end up getting is going to be the multi-trillion dollar question. Because the further away from this ideal target that we get, the more complex, fragmented and costly it is going to become for shipping businesses from here on out. The more ambiguity we have, the harder it will be to attract investment and all of those difficult conversations yet to come about market-based mechanisms, carbon pricing and fuels, well, that becomes that much more difficult the more we move away from those targets. Investment decisions are going to get pushed back because the demand signals are not there. And yet again, we've lost another five years waiting for the next policy review to correct the last set of fudges. So the can gets kicked down the road and several member states start disappearing underwater eventually. But don't take my word for it. I have three experts for you this week to explain why 2023 is going to determine how costly, how complex and how fragmented shipping regulation is about to get. Catherine Palmer should be a pretty familiar voice to many of you regular listeners. She's the shipping lead at the UN Climate Champions team. Susan Ruffo is the Senior Ocean and Climate Advisor at the UN Foundation. And Ifro Leary is the Head of Opportunity Green, a non-profit using law and economics to solve international climate issues. Let's start with Aoife, because for her, it's not simply a question of whether we get a good or a bad outcome this year. It's such a pivotal point that she sees this process as being about the future of the IMO as an institution. It's about how we regulate shipping and potentially about climate litigation risk for companies. To me, this crunch time is really about whether the IMO is still going to be relevant and whether we're going to have global regulation. Because the shipping industry's trajectory will be regulated in line with 1.5, but the question is whether that will be done through the IMO or elsewhere. And I think that's what the IMO and its member states really need to focus on for this upcoming meetings. 
But on top of that, and this is something that's only really beginning to be discussed in shipping boardrooms, but there's a huge risk of climate litigation in the shipping industry. So what I mean by that is essentially shipping at the moment doesn't have strict decarbonization targets or legislation that they can kind of sit in a courtroom and say, well, look, we're following this that's going on. They're essentially out there unprotected. Um, I think you will have companies looking at their assets and going, are these going to be stranded in 10 to 20 years when stronger regulations come in? Um, and on top of that, because shipping is, you know, as we hear all the time, a servant of world trade and all these interconnected supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. If you are a big public facing company, you will have for sure already signed up to any number of Paris aligned targets Similarly, most big investors will have, and they will now be looking at the shipping industry and going, huh, oh God, if you're not in line with my targets, then I risk being pulled out of whatever pledge I've committed to. I potentially risk that litigation, which may come with the shipping company itself. So it's not even the classic regulators, I would say, of you know the European Union and all of that, which, which they definitely are. But there's going to be a lot more pressure from, yeah, it could be NGOs taking climate litigation cases, but also the financiers. Um, it's going to come from every single angle. And if I was a shipping company, I would much rather we had a clear, ambitious regulation from the IMO that I can just comply with. It's global. It's there. You know, I know what I have to do. Instead of, as you say, this completely fragmented regulatory environment where I'm trying to comply with potentially a litigation ruling, um, some pressure from my insurance company, plus a regional regulation from the EU, and who knows what you know China may decide to do next. So that is the future that is facing, and that that is, yeah. If, if I was a shipping company, I'd be very worried right now um, and putting a huge amount of pressure on any government that I knew in the IMO to say to them, please come out with something ambitious uh, that I can just comply with and make my life a lot easier. Okay, so there's some interesting conversations that need to be had there. But let's step back a bit and look at what we're actually talking about here, because Although the headlines are inevitably going to focus on what the IMO eventually agrees on as a climate target for 2050, there is a lot more detail and nuance wrapped up in these discussions this year. And it's not a single meeting. Between now and MEPC in July, we have several so-called intercessionals, where a lot of the detail will be discussed and agreed in advance of that meeting. And of course, there are developments happening outside of the IMO structures, notably within the EU. So, Let's turn to our climate champion lead for shipping and podcast regular, Catherine Palmer, for a quick view of why the next six months matter so much. I think there's 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 three things. So so we all know that MEPC 80 is going to adopt a revised greenhouse gas strategy. So, you know, we've started those negotiations on that revision. They started at um, the last ISWG and, and MEPC 79. So, you know, submissions were put in, um, documents are being drafted that are bringing all these suggestions for the revisions together. And so, so really, you know, 
what do we want to get out of that revised greenhouse gas strategy and why is it important? So I think there's there's three things. It's the levels of ambition in the current strategy need to be strengthened to put shipping on a trajectory that is aligned with the 1.5 degree temperature goals in the Paris Agreement. So there's the whole strengthening of the level of ambition. And why is that important? It's not just about that end date. I think, you know, there's so much more convergence around zero by 2050. So it's not about that that end point. What's critical in these level of ambitions are the 2030 and 2040 milestones and interim targets along the way. Because they're going to be the checkpoints that are going to enable and unlock investment decisions today and in the near term, particularly the 2030 goal. So 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 that's why it, it need it's really important, it's really significant to um to the private sector is is these near term interim targets for 2030 and 2040 because that's what's going to be important in unlocking um, investment and capital flow flow of, of finance into um, the shipping industry and also into the zero carbon fuel supply chains. So I think that's where we really need to focus on on those. So we need to have those significantly strengthened so that they can unlock those flows of, of finance into the right long-term scalable solutions. So not direct finance into something that works in the short term, but then becomes stranded, you know, in the midterm. So so it's about getting those at the right level of, of, of strengthening and stringency to, to direct finance flows into to the right scalable long-term solutions. The second thing we want out of the the revision of the greenhouse gas strategy is the framing of this is on a well-to-wake basis. So yes, the life cycle guidelines are being prepared and they will be ready. And those guidelines do take into account well-to-wake basis. But the challenge is how those guidelines are going to be used in policy and regulation. So yes, we're going to have a nice set of guidelines (laughs) guidelines <laughs> as we always get a nice set of, of guidance um, from the IMO but it's how they're going to be used and ensuring that we have we we can ensure that we have a robust enough well-to-wake certification schemes that can go into enforceable regulation and again, why do we want it to be well to wake? Again, it's about being able to send those signals for investment into the right um, longer term scalable zero um, emission fuels. And then I think the the third thing out of the um, MEPC 80 is the advancement of the midterm measures package. So at the moment, you know, there is agreement that it will consist of a technical element and it will consist of an economic element. And that agreement is there. So we now need to advance these and we need to advance these in a timely manner. 
So, and to also make sure that the package of, of midterm measures can be operationalized to ensure that the transition is just and equitable and then no one is disproportionately impacted. I know it's stating the obvious to point out that climate change is not just a shipping problem, but I think we still tend to look at the regulatory response in a pretty narrow shipping-specific way. And of course, those governments negotiating at the IMO are simultaneously negotiating across multiple sectors and multiple global institutions, as well as on a national level. Susan Ruffo is a senior advisor for ocean and climate at the United Nations Foundation, and she has the benefit of seeing all this from an outsider's perspective. So I thought it would be a good idea to ask her for a view on what the best case scenario looks like for shipping as just one of many pivotal issues requiring scrutiny from governments this year. So my best case, I guess I'd take a step back a little bit from just the IMO, because I think, you know, this is part of the larger conversation on global climate action, on global finance, on development. So, you know, in my best, best case scenario, uh, we basically can stop thinking about shipping and maritime as a hard to abate sector and actually see it start to transform into a leading sector. And I say that because there are the pieces are already in place to start that. Last year at COP27, we saw the release of the Just Transition Task Force for Maritime, um, which basically was an action plan for how we work with the maritime workforce on a transition you know, to a clean energy future. We also saw the release of the resilience breakthroughs for maritime. So thinking about you know, ports and sort of this sector generally, how vulnerable it is to shocks and stresses and, you know, economic inequities and thinking about like how we start to deal with that. So we've already got a couple of pieces of that climate action in place. MEPC 80 is the key to thinking about how mitigation will work in the sector. And, and it will set the agenda for the next couple of decades. So it's really important that we get that right, because it also impacts whether or not we're actually going to be able to meet the Paris targets of 1.5 degrees at all. And so for me, um, you know, it's critical to put it in that framing, you know, as a best case scenario for the decision at that meeting, you know, I think what we, what we're hoping for is a real increase in ambition, um, that the member states of the IMO adopt a strategy that says, you know, we are going to decarbonize the sector by 2050. So zero emissions by 2050 um, on a Paris aligned pathway. So it's important to do that on a trajectory that will, you know, help us and the rest of the world stay on that track. So that means, you know, significant cuts by 2030, you know, 80% by 2040 um, to really get to a place where that is meaningful. And not only that, but in a framework that is, you know, as they say in the IMO, just and equitable. Um, so that means we're thinking about the workforce and all of those people who are, you know, going to be handling new fuels, whether it's onshore or on ships. Um, and we're also thinking about, the differences within countries and the you know the economic implications of this because uh, small island states, least developed countries, you know middle income countries that depend on trade will all be affected by this transition um, and in different ways and they're very vulnerable. So how do we do this in an equitable way that we can truly say we're not leaving anyone behind? Just and equitable is a phrase you should get used to hearing a lot more of this year if you haven't already worked that one out for yourselves. But just so we're clear here. When Susan talks about a best-case outcome, much like Aoife and Catherine and, to be honest, anybody I know currently lobbying for a progressive outcome at the IMO, she is looking for something 
that is aligned to the 1.5 degree Paris targets uh, that is well to wake with robust targets set for 2030 and 2040, as well as the headline 2050 goal. Yes, absolutely. I think you have to. Otherwise, the incentives that you're sending all the way up the chain to uh, renewable energy producers, to green hydrogen producers, um, get really distorted if you only look tank to wake. So, and, you know, I think that's another really important thing about the sector is there is an incredible potential for the maritime sector to influence investment all the way up to, you know, renewable energy production and thinking about, you know, again, in a best case scenario, you know, what does a Namibia look like as a new renewable energy producer that then can produce green hydrogen that then become the fuels of the future for the shipping sector. So it's really important to get that accounting right because of the incentives it sets. Not to bang on about it, but come July, you can pretty much guarantee that the mainstream press will be running headlines about 2050, because realistically, even the sceptics are expecting the IMO to up the ambition there. And while that's welcome, if we don't get an agreement that adds enough detail about how we get there in 2030 and 2040, well, that could be a pretty meaningless achievement. The detail matters in this timeline because it's those points that are going to determine whether things like carbon pricing and market-based mechanisms work. It's also, as you have already heard, going to determine a lot of the investment and availability of zero-carbon fuels. And unfortunately, here is where we find IFA and a lot of the other people I know much less confident about what happens next. That's where I'm definitely least confident. Um... Unfortunately, the shipping industry is very, um, yeah, well, I'm going to lobby the, um, the the things that get thrown at them quite a lot. They're very conservative and slow moving, um, though not slow steaming, because what we have in terms of the technologies and just efficiency, uh, operational measures. We can use wind a lot more. There's so much potential to reduce emissions immediately from tomorrow. And the shipping industry just doesn't seem to be interested in actually taking that forward and having that imposed via regulation, which is really quite bizarre to me. Um, And I think, unfortunately, they won't really agree to anything that will be what we need for 2030, purely because those types of measures are things that potentially reduce uh, the operating space for the shipping industry, I would say. And on top of that, you know, I think the shipping industry itself does need to take a step back and also look at, take this as an opportunity to think about, well, what are we shipping and why are we shipping it? And is it really going to continue in a 1.5 degree world And maybe get out of some of those areas quickly if you are a smart moving company. Um, And I think there's also a really, really interesting point that the shipping industry has not yet got its head around that we talk about short term action and these intermediate targets by 2030. We have to reduce emissions in line with it. We absolutely do. Uh, But I think there's this, you know, reluctance. So we'll have these future fuels, hydrogen, methanol, ammonia, you know, etc., and can get into those. But um, even if we have those future fuels, we need to be building them today, right? And we are not. And the shipping industry, because it doesn't have any regulation and doesn't have any stringent targets, it is far at the bottom of every regulator's list of who is going to get the green hydrogen, for example, in any country. So 
for the shipping industry, even if they are relying on future fuels, which they, sh- which they shouldn't be, <laughs> they should be looking at all these other things in the interim anyway, but they are already behind where they need to be. It was a really interesting report from Carbon Brief this week on uh, hydrogen, green hydrogen for 1.5 and whether we're in just in general in the whole world aligned with what we need. And the answer was no, we need to scale up really quickly. Um, and if that is true, you can guarantee that shipping is, uh, yeah, way, way, way behind. So again, I mean, I, I would really look to the shipping industry and ask them, is that where you want to be? And is that where you want your governments to be? Surely you would want them to be helping you to get those future technologies. And what's required for that is stringent interim regulation. Look, I know it's January and I'm already banging on about agreements that are yet to be made for another six months. But I want to hammer home this point now. Because there are consequences here, as Aoife, Susan and Catherine have all pointed out this week. The case for a 1.5 aligned well-to-wake agreement with robust interim targets is pretty clear to anyone. It defines the shape of the curve that the industry and investors can plan against. If we leave ambiguity and come up with a net zero fudge, that means at best another five years of bad policy with no teeth. That means it's really hard for anyone in the investment community to say that they're confident in the market demand because ultimately they're going to be waiting for yet another review to be sure that the demand is there, investment decisions will get pushed back, and everybody is just going to be kicking the can further down the road. And at that point, we are really going to be dependent on individual governments and private companies to take up the slack for another five to six years. Confidence is gone, fragmented politics takes hold, a costly, complex future awaits us all. Let's try and avoid that. On that note, We will be back next week with, hopefully, some more optimistic thoughts. In the meantime, please do register for the Lloyd's List digitalisation webinar on February the 15th at 2pm UK time. You can find the details in the podcast notes or on lloydslist.com. But for now, thank you for listening and have a good week.